ask that our hearts are settled, that we open up our hearts to you, that you bless this time, and, um, and Lord, thank you again that we can open up the Bible and know that this is truth that is given to us. And so help us make application in Jesus' name. We know that this time in history that it's dark days in the house of Israel, and uh, Israel has gone through successive kings that are very evil kings. And as we begin chapter 3, we know that even though the nation has been rebelling against God, involved in idol worship, God has sent light. And he sent light through the prophet Elijah. He was one that was able to call down fire from heaven. He would uh, show the power of God uh, to the kings of Israel, but yet they would continue to reject the Lord. And so it is Elijah, as we saw last week, that he was taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. It, it's a picture of, of, you know, of Elijah, what is promised to us, that we are going to be raptured. Uh, that is, there will be a generation that will be raptured, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us about that. So Elijah didn't taste death, but he would be taken up into heaven in that fiery chariot. And so the mantle would fall, that is the mantle of the prophetic office, upon Elisha now. And you recall that when Elijah, right before he was raptured, that he would ask Elijah, what do you want from me? And Elijah would say, I want a double portion of, of your anointing. And Elijah said, you asked for a hard thing. But he would receive that double portion. And what we're going to see that now Elijah, that he has taken the prophetic ministry, he is now going to minister during this dark time of the house of Israel. Because you see, as Elijah was ministering, there was a king named Ahab that he was ruling, and he plunged the house of Israel deep into Baal worship. He made Samaria, and Samaria became the capital of those ten northern tribes uh, called the house of Israel. And he built a temple there dedicated to the false god Baal. So the nation was plunged deep into Baal worship. Also, remember that it was Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, that had built those temples in Dan and in Bethel, dedicated to the golden calf. So there was all kinds of false worship that was going on in the house of Israel. And even though Elijah, that fiery prophet, was able to demonstrate the power of God and the truthfulness of God and bringing the word of God to the leaders and to the people still, there was rebellion against God. So Ahab, as we saw at the end of 1 Kings in chapter 22, ended up being killed in battle against Syria. So his son, Azariah, he became the king. And as we opened up 2 Kings, he was just as bad as his dad. He was one that worshipped Baal and false gods. And we saw that he had an accident. And it was Elijah that brought the word that you're going to die. You're not going to recover from these injuries. So that was chapter 1. And then chapter 2, Elijah would be taken up in that fiery chariot, taken to heaven. And now Elijah is on the scene. And Elijah is going to work twice as many miracles as Elijah did as he's received a double portion of the anointing of the prophetic office from Elijah. And so that's kind of where we pick it up. And now we see in chapter 3, verse 1, Jeroam, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but did not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. And nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not 
depart from them. So here comes Jehoram. He is the brother, the younger brother of Azariah. Apparently Azariah, who was also the son of Ahab and Jezebel, that he didn't have any offsprings. So it was his younger brother Jehoram that is now the king. He is an idol worshiper, even though he put away the, the sacred pillars of Baal. That is, he wasn't involved in Baal worship. And I don't know exactly why he would do that. Perhaps it could have been that his brother, you recall in chapter 1, that he went to inquire, or that is, he sent servants to inquire of Beelzebub, uh, another form of Baal worship uh, there in Ekron. And is he going to live, go check with you know the god that he was worshiping beelzebub and you recall that elijah intercepted those servants and said hey what's the deal isn't there a god in israel in which which you can turn to in other words it was a rebuke against azariah who continued in his baal worship and beelzebub and uh, the false worship and beliefs that he was involved in why don't you turn to the true and the living god so god is again using the prophets to call the leaders and the people into repentance, but yet we've seen that all the leaders are very wicked kings. They are involved in false worship. So perhaps because that happened, maybe it was Jehoram that said, I don't want anything to do with Baal, but he was still involved in idol worship as he was involved in the sins of Jeroboam who set up those uh, temples dedicated to the golden calf. So here is Jehoram. He is, uh, as I mentioned, one ruling during this time that down south in Judah, the house of Judah, Jehoshaphat is ruling at the same time. You recall that we've already talked about Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was a godly king. He believed in the Lord. But we're going to see him uh, come up here in just a few verses as we'll continue reading. But first, the situation is at this time that it's Moab that has rebelled against um, the king of Israel, as we see in verse 4. Mesa, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly uh, would pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That's a lot of lambs and rams, isn't it? But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So here is the king of Moab, Mesa. Uh, he gets news that Ahab is dead. The reason that we know that uh, he's beginning to think about uh, rebelling at the time that Ahab died is because Second Kings opens up with Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And we're told once again in the text here. So after the death of, of Ahab, the, the house of Israel apparently is getting weaker. And so Moab, as we discuss, was overrun by David. David defeated his enemies all around him and they would pay tribute to Israel. Now, under the reign of David and, of course, of Solomon, the nation was united. But when the house of Israel split away from Judah, we know that it was Moab that was paying this heavy taxation uh, to the house of Israel and to Ahab. And now that Ahab is gone and Moab is on the east side of the Jordan River, matter of fact, Moab was right directly across uh, the hills from Jerusalem and from Bethlehem. You recall that it was Ruth that she was a Moabite as you read the book of Ruth. And it was uh, as you stand in Jerusalem today, as you stand in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem's just a suburb of Jerusalem, you look to the east, you look in the Jordan Valley, and usually it's very hazy there because of the evaporation that's coming up from the Dead Sea. 
And, uh, but, it, you know, on some days you can actually uh, look across and you can see the hills of Moab. And that's where Ruth would come from. That's where the Moabites lived on the east side of the Jordan River. And so here are the Moabites. They're rebelling against Israel. Uh, they think this is the time to get out of that heavy taxation. And we read that verse 6. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. So he's gathering his troops to go to war. And verse 7, then he went and sent for Jehoshaphat or to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by way of the wilderness of Edom. So if you were to look at a map directly east of the Jordan River, east of Israel, in the northern part uh, would be where Syria is today, was where the Ammonites were. And then um, directly to the south of them is where the Moabites were, and that's where Moab was, where Jordan is today. That's where Mount Nebo is, where Moses stood on Mount Nebo and he overlooked uh, the promised land. And then south of them, which would be just east and south of the Dead Sea, was the Edomites. Now, when you get into Moab and you get down south into where the Edomites were, it is very hot and dry. It's part of that Negev Desert. It is extremely rough terrain. It is extremely very, uh, you know, hot, as I mentioned to you, because it is desert. I've been in that area in February, and it was like 100 degrees, and it's a stifling heat, and it just, uh, you know, and it's worse in the summertime, but even in the wintertime, it is very, very hot. So here is, you know, the, the king of, um, of Israel, and he wants to form this alliance, and he wants to go to war against uh, Moab. He goes to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, hey, will you come with me and, and fight against Moab? And what does Jehoshaphat say? Well, he says in verse 7, I'll go up with you, I'm, you know, as you are, and my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now, this is kind of a rerun of what we saw, didn't we, in chapter 22 of 1 Kings. You recall that it was Jehoshaphat that went up to see Ahab, and Ahab said, hey, I want to go against the Syrians. Jehoshaphat, will you join in with us to fight against the Syrians? And Jehoshaphat said, sure, I'm as you are, and our horses and chariots you know, are as you. We're all one, and that's what Jehoshaphat did, and he almost lost his life because of it. Because you remember that it was the prophet that came as the request of Jehoshaphat. He said, hey, a, you know, Ahab, don't we have a prophet here that can speak the word of the Lord? And Ahab said, yeah, there's this one prophet that speaks on behalf of the God that you believe in, Jehoshaphat, but he always speaks bad things against me. And it was the prophet that did come and said, Ahab, this is what's going to happen. The nation's going to be defeated. The people are going to be scattered, and you're a dead man. You're going to lose your life in this battle. And so Ahab, what he did was, he says to Jehoshaphat, he said, get ready for this battle. He says, Jehoshaphat, why don't you wear your kingly robes? I'll disguise myself. And Jehoshaphat says, okay. And why he did that, I'll never understand. It just doesn't make sense. Jehoshaphat was a godly king. He was a good king. He loved the Lord, but he also wasn't always the wisest king. And he had this 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 thing about he would yoke himself with the evil kings of Israel. And we know that Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, would say to you and to me, 
that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does light have fellowship with darkness? No, it doesn't. And so here's Jehoshaphat. For some reason, he felt compelled to be yoked to the kings of Israel in, in going to war. And it, he almost lost his life because here's Ahab saying, I'm going to disguise myself. You be the king. And of course, Jehoshaphat, when he went out there, it was the Syrians that were gunning for him. Hey, there's the king of Israel. They thought it was Ahab. And Jehoshaphat cried out to the Lord, it says, and the Lord delivered him. But all he did was put a big target on his back. And why he did that, we don't fully understand, except that he was gullible. And he was one that, that didn't always use wisdom. And we know that Jehoshaphat also would link himself with Ahab after the death of Ahab, when Azariah becomes king. They were building ships to go get gold in Ophir. And they would want to bring the gold back, but it didn't work because the ships all wrecked and they sank and uh, it didn't happen. So he was linking himself and yoking himself with the king of Israel and, and trying to bring in all this gold and everything. And instead of, you know, his, you know, ship coming in, the ships went down is what happened. And so he learned, you know, you think he would learn from that. So once again, now here is Joram. He wants to yoke himself with Jehoshaphat and going to war against the Moabites. And so he says, okay, we'll go ahead and do that. And I think that Jehoshaphat, that the reason that he did do that is because he was one that he wanted the nations to come together. I think he really wanted the house of Israel and the house of Judah to, to come together and be united once again. But in that desire, because what we're going to see later on as we continue in Second Kings, is that Jehoshaphat's son is going to end up marrying Ahab's daughter. Her name is Ataliah, and she's going to bring a whole lot of problems to Judah. Because she is an unbeliever and she's an idol worshiper and it's going to be bad news. And you see, sometimes Christians or even Christian leaders, they will begin to compromise in this whole idea of trying to bring unity together and the churches together and stuff. We always want to stand for truth. And we're not to be yoked with that which is false. We're not to be yoked with that which is darkness. We're not to be yoked with that that is wrong. And we need to be careful and use wisdom. It doesn't mean we don't witness. It doesn't mean we don't bring correction. It doesn't mean that we you know, continue to love, but love out of truth. And we don't want to compromise truth, okay? So here's Jehoshaphat. I think he would compromise in a great desire to want to bring the nations together. So he says, okay, we'll go to war. And it is Joram that says, which way do we go up? He says, well, we'll go on the south southern border. We'll come up through Edom. We'll get the king of Edom to side with us. It'll be us three nations going against the Moabites. They won't suspect that, that we'll be coming up from that end. So he says, okay, we'll go ahead and do that. Um, and so here is this battle that is taking shape that is going to happen in verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elijah, the son of Saphat, is here 
who poured water in the hands of Elijah. So a couple of things. They're coming up from the very south. They go the roundabout way. They probably go clear down in the Negev Desert in southern Israel, which is very hot, south of the Dead Sea. They come swinging around. They're going to go up in the southern border of Moab, and there's no water. There's, you know, no food. It's hot seven days. And all of a sudden, the king of Israel, he begins to cry out, and he says, you know what? The Lord is going to deliver us into the hands of Moab. But it was Jehoshaphat at this time who uses wisdom and he says, why don't we inquire of the Lord? Isn't there a prophet? Yes, there is. There's Elijah who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Now, a couple of things here. It is very easy for any of us that when we face dry times and difficult times and, and difficult circumstances, you see, we have a choice. They either complain to the Lord and about the Lord or cry out to the Lord. And here is the king of Israel that he's complaining, he's folding. Uh, he, he's really uh, caving in right now. And he's saying, oh, the Lord is against us and the Lord's going to deliver us to the hands of Moab. And that can happen. You see, I've talked with even Christians that when they face very difficult times, that they'll come and talk to me and God is against me and, and God is working against me and he doesn't love me and he doesn't care about me. And there's this complaining against the Lord. And I want you to know that even though you go through trials and difficulties and hard times, that the Lord is always for you. He loves you and he desires to work as you do not complain about him or complain to him, but as you cry out to him. And that's the wonderful thing about being a child of God, a daughter or a son of the true and living God who loves you. As you've surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, you belong to him. And he wants to work on your behalf. But it's very important that we cry out to him. And we say, Lord, I'm in this dry time, this difficult circumstance. I don't understand, but know that God's promises are true, that he loves you, that he desires to work on your behalf. And he desires to be your refuge and your strength and your wisdom to give you direction. And the Lord wants to do so much. But so oftentimes we begin to cave. We begin to become negative and we murmur and complain rather than coming to the Lord. And that's the wonderful thing about you and I is that as children of God that we can come to him every day in every circumstance and we can cry out to him and he hears us. He hears us. And he desires to work on our behalf and desires to guide us and direct us. And so here's Jehoshaphat saying, why don't we inquire of the Lord? We can hear from the Lord. He'll direct us and he will guide us. So verse 12, and Jehoshaphat said, um, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat um, and the king of Edom went down to him. And then Elijah said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hands of Moab. And so we see in verse 14, Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So they go down, they see Elijah, Elijah says to the king of Israel, why are you coming to me? Why don't you go to the gods of your father? Why don't you go to and pray to the golden calf that you've been worshiping? And we've seen that over and over again, even in 1 Kings and now as we move into 2 Kings, 
that the kings of Israel, as they would turn to their false gods and their false worship, that the prophets would say to them, why don't you turn to your false god during this time that you're in trouble and difficulties and, and, and trials? And you see those false gods, nowhere do you ever see in the Old Testament that they were able to help out you know, those who turn to them because they're false and they're not real. And that's what Elijah is saying. Why don't you turn to him? You seem to reject the true and the living God. And we see that the king of Israel is still complaining here. He's saying, oh, he's going to deliver us into the hands of Moab. You know, there are many people that are that way. They, they seek the God of money or they'll seek the God of status or prestige or power. But when that is gone, they realize that those things aren't going to help them. And again, I want to remind you how blessed that you and I are because we know the true and the living God, and we can turn to him anytime. I don't know what people do that don't have the Lord in their lives. I know that when they face difficulties or trials, how hard it must be, how difficult it must be when they realize that whatever that they have turned to and whatever their God is isn't going to be able to help them. It's such a state of hopelessness such a state of, of, of confusion. And I pray that none of us here would ever put our hope in the world, that our hope and our trust would always be in the true and the living God, and that we would also show compassion to those that when they realize that the things that I have or the things that I turn to or my you know, own strength, my own intellect, my own togetherness, it isn't going to get me through this time of difficulties or loss or tragedy that we would have compassion enough to be able to go and minister to them and to introduce them to the true and the living God. I think all of us that we know people and we've seen it in people's life that don't have the Lord and, and just a sense of hopelessness that can come to them when they face difficulties, and every person will at one time in their lives because, you see, it rains on the just and the unjust, as Jesus said. Everyone goes through trials and difficulties in life. But you and I rejoice because we know the true and the living God and we can turn to him. So why don't you turn there and, and Jehoshaphat, uh, if he wasn't here, I wouldn't even speak to you guys. Then the Lord's going to give guidance and direction. And so we read in verse 15, that now bring me a magician and musician, and then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. I, I like this. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. That tells us, break forth into song, you who are barren. And I think that's worth remembering. And I think it's worth writing down and, and remembering Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. That break forth in song, you who are barren. And that you and I, that we can come just as we did tonight and praise the Lord and have a special time of worship. Even if you're going through difficulties and even if you're going through a barren time and a in a rough time in your life. Because we have reason to worship. We have a living hope. We have a trust in, in knowing that our God loves us and he cares for us. And so he inhabits the praises of his people. And one of the tendencies of Christians can be, listen, is that when they go through difficulties or hard times, they begin to pull away from the Lord. They begin to pull away from worshiping the Lord and having devotions and reading their Bibles. They'll begin to pull away from being in fellowship with other believers. And don't go that direction. 
It's a real tendency to do that. To, to, I'm going through a hard time. Again, the, the murmuring, the complaining against the Lord. The Lord doesn't love me. The Lord doesn't care for me. Yes, he does. Please get that in your heart and keep it there in your heart. Don't buy into the lie of the enemy that will come along and say, God is against you. God doesn't care about you. No, he does love you. And he desires for you, especially at that time, to turn to him and continue to just learn from him and to be listening to him. Remember Elijah was in the cave? That he was down, he was discouraged. Jezebel was going to lop his head off. And, and there is Elijah. And it was the still small voice of the Lord that he would hear. It was in the quiet cave, in the quiet times, that the Lord spoke to him. And you continue in your quiet devotions to seek the Lord and be one that you praise the Lord and what you will find that he inhabits the praises of his people and he will minister to you. And perhaps even some of you tonight and as you come in at other times, Sundays, that as we begin to worship, that you feel the Lord just encouraging you and lifting you up. I know I do. It's such a blessing. And I hope that you continue to do that. But don't pull away from the Lord, okay? Don't pull away from him. But continue to, to just look to Him and to worship Him. You can go through the Psalms, you can see that David, that he would talk about in those Psalms, he's so articulate about the troubles that he went through and the difficulties. And my enemies surround me. And he talks about how his pillow was soaked from his tears. Now his bones ached, you know, because of the trials and difficulties that he was going through, but yet he would break out in praise, and then he would come to realize that the Lord was his refuge and his strength. You see that over and over again in the Psalms, because David was a one who had a heart after God and a worshiper of God, so continue to be a worshiper, and that's what Elijah does. He says, I want to hear the music, and, and the Lord begins to speak to him in verse 16, and he said, thus says the Lord, make the valley full of ditches, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor sh shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. And also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree, and stop every, up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones." So here's Elijah. He says, this is what you guys do. You're in this hot, barren desert. Remember this. I mean, it's like being in Death Valley. He says, dig ditches. And what will happen is the Lord's going to fill those ditches up with water. This is no small thing for the Lord. And remember that in your difficulties and trials, that it is no small thing, whatever it is that you're facing, for the Lord to work. Not only was he the the one that is, you know, the creator of all that land around there in that desert. He, he's creator of the whole world. He can make it rain. It's, he's the creator of the whole universe. So whatever it is that you are facing, God is bigger than any problem that you can face. And it's no small thing for God to work in your situation. But notice here is Elijah said, you dig the ditches and God will fill it up with water. Now, the command could have gone out from the kings to say, okay, guys, start digging ditches. And they could have very easily have said, what do you mean dig ditches? I'm not going to dig ditches. That doesn't make sense. Look how hot and dry it is out here. We're about ready to die. And, and they're going to be filled with water. There's absolutely no way. But they would do what it is that was told to them, and then God filled the ditches with water. It kind of reminds me of Jesus. You remember in John chapter 9, there was a man that was born blind, and, and Jesus went up and 
and rubbed mud in his eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And that man could have very easily have said, he's at the temple, he would have had to walk about a quarter of a mile because they found that pool recently, just a few years ago. And it's at the bottom of the hill, and it was the water source for Jerusalem. And he would have to walk quite a ways from the temple area, the southern steps probably in that area, all the way downhill and find his way down to the Pool of Siloam. He could have very easily said, what do you mean go wash in the Pool of Siloam? It doesn't make sense. What are you doing wiping mud in my eyes and I can't see anyway? And who's going to lead me there? But he did what the Lord told him to do and he washed and he came up seeing. My point is simply this that oftentimes the Lord in His Word and in His commandments and in the principles and the truth that you have of the Lord, He will tell you to do something in certain circumstances and you'll say, Lord, how can I do this? But, but again, a principle that you know, that God's commandments are God's enablements. And as you say, okay, Lord, I hear your voice, I read your word, I know you're telling me to do this in my circumstance, that I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to dig the ditches, I'm going to go to the pool, I'm going to wash. That you move forward in what God has called you to do and do what is right, and you're going to see that God is working. But oftentimes we'll say, well, that's not going to work. I can't do that. I'm not going to do what the Lord has told me to do. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to go my own direction. I'll figure it out in my own understanding. And that's where you're going to fail and falter and continue to be weak. But it's when you hear the voice of the Lord saying, do this, that you say, okay, Lord, it may not make sense to me right now. I may not understand how you're going to do this, but I know that it's no small thing for you to work in my circumstance. And I know that your word is true, and I'm just going to do what you've called me to do, and I'm going to allow you to work. And that's where you're going to see the Lord working in a mighty way. And that's what these guys did. They end up digging the ditches in verse 20. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered and they stood at the border. And then they rose up early in the morning and the sun was shining on the water and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood the kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. So what they did was, as Moab, the Moabites are preparing for war, they look on the other side where the kings were gathered of Israel and the troops and Judah and, and the Edomites, and they saw not water or ditches filled with water. What they saw what looked like blood. And so they thought they've killed each other. And to, you know, the spoils we will go. And, and so they came, to, verse 24, to the camp of Israel. And Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them. And they entered their land, killing the Moabites. And then they destroyed the cities. And each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. But they left the stones of Kerhereseth intact. However, the slinger surrounded and attacked it. So Judah and Israel and Edom have a great victory, and um, we see that they're trying to take this city, Kurt Hereseth, and when the king, verse 26 of Moab, saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through the, to the king of Edom, but they could not. 
And then he took his eldest son who would have reigned in his place and offer him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was a great indignation against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. So here, the king of Moab, he knows that he's done away with. He can't break through the lines, even though he has, you know, in this city, he knows that they're going to come against him and kill him. So what does he do? In desperation, he takes his eldest son and he offers to offers him as a burnt offering to Shamash. Shamash is the king of the, uh, or the god of the Moabites. He offers them, sacrifices them, and then pins them to the wall to where Israel could see it. And Israel was full of indignation. In other words, they were so repulsed by it. They were so taken back that they didn't have any strength anymore to fight. They said, forget it. It's enough. We need to go. What is interesting is archaeologists found what was called the Moab, Bite stone, and the Moabite stone, when they found it in this area, that it talks about how the king of Moab would talk about and, and he would proclaim that because he was worshiping and, and did the sacrifice of his son to Shamas, that Shamas delivered him from Israel. And archaeologists believe that it's a reference to here what we're reading about in this Bible you know, in chapter 3. He thought because he offered his son that all of a sudden, because Israel was just so full of indignation, so repulsed, they just went back, he thought he had victory. Now, how mixed up and messed up is that? But that's the world, guys. And the world will be so mixed up and messed up spiritually and in their thinking that people think, I'm going to have victory if I turn to this thing that is false. I'm going to have, you know, great victory and, and proclaim it. And you and I, we will look at that, won't we? And we get very discouraged, don't we? Maybe you see it at work. Maybe you see it in your own family members. Maybe you see it at work. And we can just get, you know, how can you do that? How can you think that way? And isn't it discouraging when we see that? But what I want to remind you is continue to pray. Because Satan has blinded their eyes is what the scripture says. And, and the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit is what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians. The people of the world, they don't understand the things of God. And that's why we need to pray, Lord, that you open up their eyes, you soften their hearts, that Lord, that you give them understanding by the spirit of God somehow, some way. Because I think what we're seeing is more people, uh, you look at the world, how they think, and how can you do that? And how can you sacrifice, you know, uh, you know, the things that you do, your family, your children, your integrity, your character, your honesty, because you're turning to these things that are false. And you think that it's great, you think it's wonderful, you think that you have victory? No. But Lord, open up their eyes. Take the blindness away. Lord, soften their hearts. Help them to see. So this chapter reminds us how just mixed up the world can be in those who are worshiping those things that are false. In chapter 4, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elijah, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elijah said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, and then pour it 
into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. Verse 5, so she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons and brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel, so the oil ceased. And then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your son shall live on the rest. So we're going to see that Elisha is working miracles here by the hand of God. And here is a widow. Um, she's married to one of the sons of the prophet. And uh, she finds herself alone. And she says to Elijah, Elijah, the creditor's coming. I have a debt. He's going to take my two sons away, you know, our inheritance, and, and put them as slaves. And I'm going to lose everything. And Elijah said, what do you have in the house? And she says, all I have is a jar of oil. And he says, this is what you do. Go find all the empty vessels that you can find. Go around and start asking and bring them here. Just do it. As many as you can find and start pouring that oil. And she did that. And again, she did what the word of the Lord was given to her. She could have very easily said, what? I just got a jar of oil. What's that going to do? But she would do that and she would pour it into those empty vessels and it kept filling up to all the vessels that they had gathered was filled up and oil of course was very expensive so go and sell it and pay off your debt and live on the rest you're going to be okay i want us to make some practical application as we look at this and just as we see a miracle of elijah but also we know that oil in the old testament speaks of what it speaks of the holy spirit and i want to encourage you you who desire to minister to others to see god working in a powerful way in your life that you take what you have what little do you have? Because any of us who desire to minister, we need the Holy Spirit flowing through us and working through us. You take as what little you have, what time you have, what time you have to pray for people, to help people out in very practical ways, and you start pouring into those individuals that are linked to you in your life, those empty vessels that are all around you. And what you're going to see is the Holy Spirit is going to continue to flow through you, and it's going to work in some mighty ways. You continue what little that you have. Lord, you know what? I got a little time. I got a little you know, bit of time to pray for people or help out people. There are people that are empty, that are hurting, and I'm just going to pour out to them, and you're going to see the Lord working in a mighty way. And you're going to see that he's going to continue to just work through you, and he's going to continue doing that day after day, and as you just continue to desire to minister to others. So I pray that that's just an encouragement to you. And Elijah continues to work miracles in verse 8. Now it happened one day that Elijah went to Shunem, and there was a notable woman or a great woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by that he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, Look now, I know that he is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there in a table and a chair and a lampstand so it will be whenever he comes to us he can turn in there so here's elijah he's traveling and the bible says here's a notable woman or a great woman in the eyes of the lord and what made her great in the eyes of the lord well number one is we're going to see here that she was given to hospitality she recognized that elijah was a man of god 
And whenever he would pass by, he would, she would care for him, she would feed him, and then she said to her husband, let's fix up this room so he can come and rest and have a nightstand and a bed and, and just be able to relax. So she was given the hospitality. So I believe that we can learn from this woman tonight as we go through this text very quickly, that if you want to be a noble person, if you want to be you know, great in the eyes of the Lord, first be given the hospitality. We are told in the book of Romans that as Christians, we're to be hospitable. And I pray that you would always be willing to be hospitable towards others. We live in a day and age where, you know, we, we like to isolate ourselves or we're not really given, you know, to hospitality. Don't bother me. Don't do that. Not so with us as Christians. We're the given to hospitality here at Calvary Chapel and then you as well. Invite people over. As you see people that you know are hurting or those that need to be ministered to or perhaps you want to get to know other brothers and sisters, invite them. Invite them over. And sometimes what I will hear, and, and I understand the feeling that, well, you know, I don't really nobody know anyone in the church and nobody's invited me over or, or called me or anything. Well, why don't you invite somebody over? You make an effort to do that. And I want to encourage you in that. And I think all of us have a responsibility. So be given over to hospitality. Be willing to, to open up your home and open up your life to others. And that's what she's doing. So number one, she was given over to hospitality. And then as we continue here in verse uh, 11, we read, And it happened one day that, the, um, that he came there and turned into the upper room and laid down there. And then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call a Shulamite woman. And he had uh, called her, and she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us all uh, with this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to, to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? So she answered, I dwell among my own people. I think a second thing that makes this woman great in the eyes of the Lord, she was very content. Elijah wanted to do something very special for her. You've taken care of us. We want to bless you. What can we do for you? Can I speak to the king on your behalf? He can probably bless you in some way. Do you want me to speak to the commander of the army? You know, he can probably protect you, and you'll have some special privileges. She says, it's okay. I dwell among my people. I'm fine. I'm content. I think that's something that, as we've discussed before, I think just recently, a couple Wednesdays ago, that, you know, here was Ahab. Remember, he wanted Naboth's vineyard and he wasn't content. And, and what ended up happening because of that and the ugliness that happened that followed. We live in a society where we're not content. And what my prayer for us is that, as Paul says, I learned to be content. And I think that if you really want to mature as a Christian, if you really want to experience that victorious Christian life, learn to be content, folks. There's nothing wrong with having more if God gives you more. But be content with what you have and be content where God has you. That, you know what, Lord, you've blessed me. You've given me eternal life. I have your son, Jesus. That's the very best. What more, you know, could I want? And we do desire things and we want things, but learn to be content. And I think that's an important characteristic that should be in our lives as Christians, to learn to be content and not always wanting more and, and watching out for covetousness, as Jesus said that we're to watch out for. So she's very content, and, and she says, I dwell among my people. I, I, I don't you know, really need anything. In verse 14, so he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, 
Uh, actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. So he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood at the doorway. And then he said, About this time next year, you shall embrace the son. And she said, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of, of which Elijah had told her. He wanted to do something. Gehazi says, Hey, she doesn't have a son. Of course, in ancient Israel at that time, um, that was something that was a big deal, not to have a son to continue the inheritance. Her husband is old. Um, it's not happening. And Elijah says, you're going to have a son. And she says, it's too good to be true. Sometimes I think that we as believers, that we know that God can bless, but where we can have problems in our faith is we don't think that God wants to bless us. He doesn't want to work for me. He doesn't want to bless me. Everybody else he does, but not me. And I pray that you would know that the Lord desires to work for you as well, whatever that might mean, that he desires to bless. He desires, as you just stay faithful to him, as you just, just rely on him, as you trust in him and rest in his love, he wants to work on your behalf. And so you're going to have a child, and she does. And, um, and the woman conceived, verse 17, and bore a son when the appointed time had come in which Elijah had told her, and the child grew. Now it happened when... One day that when he went out to his father to the reapers and he said to his father, my head, my head. And so he said to the servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him and went out. She has a son. He grows. He's out in the field. It's the reapers are out there, an accident happens. Maybe he got struck with a sickle or something and in his head, and, and it's a very serious injury, and he ends up dying. But I think the third thing that we see here is this woman did have faith, and that's what makes her a great woman of God. She doesn't prepare him for burial, but she takes her son up to Elijah's room and prepares for a miracle. And she's going to go get Elijah as we continue reading verse 22. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, It is well. It is well. No matter what it is that we go through, I can't, I can't help but think about that song, It is well with my soul. Why are you going to church, her husband says. You know, it's not the Sabbath, it's not the new moon. Why are you going to see the man of God? That's kind of what he's saying. You know, why are you going to see him? It's, it's not the day that you go to church, it's not the Sabbath, it's not any of those things. Sometimes people say to you, why do you go to church on Wednesday night? Why do you go to Calvary Chapel for Bible study, especially if you're studying the Old Testament? Why would you want to do that? We can worship the Lord any day and learn of him. And that's what's so wonderful about being a Christian. Paul would say that one man esteems one day above another. One man esteems every day like you be convinced in your own mind. I happen to be one that every day is a day to enjoy the Lord and worship him and go to him and enjoy him and hear from him. And that's what she's doing. She's saying, I'm going to go see the man of God. In verse 24, she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw 
her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look to Shuamite woman, and please run to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And, and she answered, it is well. Now she comes from the Samaritan mountains across the Jezreel Valley to Mount Carmel. There's Elisha. She's, he sees her coming. He knows something's not right. He knows something up is up. So he is sends Gehazi ahead. Go ask her, is something wrong with her husband? Is something wrong with her son? She says, it is well. In other words, she doesn't want to talk to Gehazi. She wants to talk to Elijah. In verse 27, and when it came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Verse 27, a couple quick considerations here. I know it's getting late, but a few more minutes and then we'll be done with the story. But this is really important because not only are we seeing the characteristics that made this woman great in the eyes of God. She was hospitable, she was content, she had faith, but also we see what made Elijah very effective and great in being a servant of the Lord. First of all, we saw in the previous chapter, he washes the hands of Elijah. And that speaks of humility. He was humble. He washed the hands of Elijah. He was a practical servant. And listen, any of you that really want to be used of the Lord, you need to come in humbleness before the Lord and humbleness to your service to the Lord and practical service to the Lord. To learn to wash hands. Jesus washed feet and serve in a very humble way. And that was Elijah. But also the second thing, listen, he had compassion. He had compassion on this lady that is hurting. And you see, what can happen is we can minister over time and we start to lose that compassion. Gehazi pushes her away. And here is Elisha saying, leave her alone. She is hurting. And may we never lose compassion for people who are hurting. And if you want to be used of the Lord in a very effective way, have compassion for people. If you don't have compassion for people, you're not going to be used of the Lord in the way that you could or you should. That's just the bottom line. Jesus looked at the multitude, it says in Matthew's gospel, as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. Jesus reached out with that man that had leprosy, that was full of leprosy, and had compassion towards him. Jesus was one that was full of compassion for the people that he ministered to. And if you and I want to minister to others, we need to have compassion. If you lose that, where it's like people bug me, get away from me, and all of this, I don't want to be bothered by people, then you're not going to be effective in ministry at all. Because the Lord desires to use those who have compassion towards others, that have a heart for others. And that's what Elijah did. And so he says, you know what? The Lord hasn't told me. He's hid it from me. That's the second thing that I see here. Sometimes when we minister to others, I can talk to others and I think, oh, what's going on? What is wrong? And I don't know because the Lord hasn't really given me a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or anything like that. And I just have to commit it to the Lord. And you will talk to people and you'll think, what is it with them? What's going on? I can't figure them out. You just got to trust in the Lord because the Lord may not always tell you what is going on or give you that discernment or wisdom or word of knowledge or whatever may be taking place. But trust in the Lord. And here is Elijah. I don't know what's going on. 
And so verse 28, she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. She's going to stay with Elijah. Gehazi goes ahead. In verse 31, Gehazi went ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child has not awakened. And when Elijah came into the house where the child lying dead on his bed, and he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. And he returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes and he called Gehazi and said, call the Shuamite woman. So he called her and when she came into him, he said pick up your son and she went in fell at his feet and bowed to the ground and then she picked up her son and went out we're going to stop here but one more minute we're done simply this a very important lesson Gehazi went ahead laid the staff on the face of the child nothing happened he comes back nothing's happened so Elijah goes into the room and he lays on the child mouth to mouth hand to hand feet to feet I just want to say this we live in a day and age where we're getting less and less personable. We're, you know, we don't make the phone calls. We don't, you know, see people personally. We like to use, you know, technology today, which is very useful. There's nothing wrong. Don't get me wrong. I use it too. We like to text. We like to send email. We like to send Facebook messages. You know, whatever it might be. Those are all things. But here's the thing. Never forget to be personal with people if you want to minister to them. And people where there's a deadness in their life, that the way that you're going to bring life back into them is when you begin to reach out and really touch them personally. You go mouth to mouth, hand to hand, feet to feet. In other words, you make the effort to say, you know what, I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to talk to them personally. You can encourage them through a text or email. I'm not saying you can't do that, but don't forget to get personal. And don't forget to reach out and touch people's lives as you take the time to do that. And that's where you're going to see that life is going to bring brought into people that there's a deadness in some area or whatever. God wants to use you in that way. But sometimes we won't take the time. We get so busy and I'll just you know send a quick letter and I don't want to be bothered. I can't see them. Take the time. Be flexible. Be open to the Lord to be able to speak to them words of encouragement and truth. To be able with your, your hands, be able to serve in very practical ways. Maybe making a meal for somebody or you know, just you know, encouraging them. Just be able to help in some way and to be able to walk with them in their trials and difficulties and say, you know what, I'll be here to encourage you and bless you. Be able to just, as you go feet to feet and eye to eye, I'm going to, you know what, I'm just going to, I see what's going on and I want to be a blessing to you. And I just want to be one that you know that you have a brother and sister in Christ. 
that cares about you. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these lessons that we can make application and about ministering to people. And as we see Elijah, this prophet of God, it was more than just the power of God. That's what we see. But, Lord, we also see that he was a man of a humble servant. He was a man of compassion. He was a man that was personable. He cared about people. And, Lord, I just pray that we would be the same. And, Lord, that we would be one that, that we would just be open to what you want to do. And, Father, we thank you that you are the God of the universe that works in our situations in dry times and difficult times that we don't have to complain to you, but we can cry out to you and trust you. And, Lord, that we can hear your word and know that you desire to work on our behalf. And, Lord, just rest in your love. And Father, I pray if there's anyone that's here tonight that perhaps that they are facing a difficult time, that you would work in their lives, that you would work in a way that they would just trust in you and rest in your love and stand on your promises. And Lord, I pray that, that all of us here, that we would be ones that we would always continue and just look into you, praising you, and Lord, just hearing your word. Father, thank you for your love for us. Father, I pray that all of us here, if there happens to be anybody that doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord, they would know that you love them. And being a Christian is about having a personal relationship with the true and the living God, and that is with Jesus Christ, who came to forgive us by dying on the cross. And if there is anybody that is here tonight that you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, that you can do so tonight. We want to give you opportunity. That Jesus died for you and he loves you. He did the greatest thing, and that is he made it possible for you to have forgiveness of sin because he went to the cross for you. And he rose again and he's alive. And he desires to forgive you, to save you, to, to, to give you eternal life. Because whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life is the promise of the scripture. And if you've never done that, that it comes by putting your faith and trust in him and crying out to him. And you pray, Jesus, come into my life. Lord, be my Lord and Savior because I have fallen short and I am a sinner. And I now turn to you. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. And Father, that you would, uh, Lord, um, just through Jesus Christ, that you would forgive me. I believe that Jesus died for all of my sins. Be my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus. And thank you for hearing my prayer. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. And Lord, I just... I want to give that opportunity, if there is anybody here by chance that has never done that, today's the day of salvation. And Father, I just thank you for your love and provision for us. I thank you for this night in Bible study. Take everybody home as the weather is bad and keep us safe and 